Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to continue with the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And this is the story of Zacchaeus. And the gospel begins, Jesus entered Jericho and was going through the town when a man whose name was Zacchaeus made his appearance. He was one of the senior tax collectors and was a wealthy man. He was anxious to see what kind of man Jesus was, but he was too short and could not see him for the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus who was to pass that way. So we now have, once again, a setting for this story, that Jesus is in Jericho. Jericho was a very important commercial city. It stood partway, halfway, basically between Jerusalem and Perea, <clears throat> and was the center of a great deal of commerce. It says here that Zacchaeus was a senior tax collector, which meant that over this commercial center, he presided over all of the uh, smaller publicans, the smaller tax collectors, such as Matthew was, um, sitting at his counting table. And we've talked before, I think, about how the tax system worked then. They were, I suppose, later on in, uh, in, in France, they were called tax farmers. And uh, they formed a kind of, it's a kind of a system, something like a protection racket here in the States, and uh, reminiscent of those as they developed, particularly in the large eastern cities during the great age of emigration in the 19th and early 20th century. But basically what the tax collector did, they were given a quota, and they were to collect that much tax from the people who were in their district, who were, they were responsible for. Their living came from whatever extra they could extract from those people. And so some of the tax collectors who, who were in less prosperous territories, of course, made less money because there was less money for them to, to, uh, to increase the tax and therefore earn a profit. But here in Jericho, there was an abundance of money because it was not just an agricultural area, but it was a commercial center as well. So that's why it says Zacchaeus was the senior tax collector. He was a supervisor. And it says he was a very wealthy man. And so that means, of course, that whatever the tax collectors ta collected, whatever extra they garnished, they had to pay some of that to their supervisor, who was the senior tax collector. So basically, Zacchaeus was, uh, was a, a man who was uh, in the employee of the Roman Empire. Herod actually had a summer palace in, in uh, Jericho. And so his, his whole um, court and his whole bureaucracy in this, in, uh, were, were in Jericho during the summer months especially. And, um, and so there was, a, there was a tremendous siphoning of wealth um, out of the commercial areas of Jericho and out of the businessmen's pockets of Jericho. And Zacchaeus was one of the uh, big benefactors, uh, one of the big benef benefitters of that. So it says that, he, that Luke wants us to know, first of all, that he's involved in kind of an unsavory trade, that, uh, that he's, he's not 
he's not looked upon at all by the by the local Pharisees, by the local Jewish community, because he has a sort of a traitor image to him because he's been working with the Romans. And uh, and Herod, of course, was a Roman puppet. And so <clears throat> Luke wants us to know exactly who this person is situated socially, financially, and so forth. So he wants to see Jesus. And is this just curiosity or is there something deeper moving with him from the things that he's heard about Jesus? Luke doesn't tell us that. But it says that he climbed a tree in order that he might be able to see Jesus as he passed that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up into the tree and he spoke to him and he said, Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry, because I must stay at your house today. Basically, kind of in a way, baiting the crowds with this because Zacchaeus was, while he was acceptable in Herodian society and acceptable in Roman society, he was not very acceptable in Jewish society <coughs> because he represented the power of the occupier, of the, of the, uh, of the uh, foreign source of, of occupation in, in, in Palestine at the time. And so Zacchaeus, once Jesus said, I have to stay at your house today, Zacchaeus hurries down, and, uh, and he welcomes him joyfully. And they all complained when they saw what was happening. Those who were the righteous, <coughs> and we certainly have encountered the righteous in the recent readings from St. Paul, or from St. Luke, especially um, the last gospel segment we looked at, when Jesus was speaking to a crowd of those who thought they were better than everybody else and had disdain for other people, that that same crowd now is the one who's gathered around this scene of Zacchaeus hurrying down out of the tree, Jesus saying, I'll stay at your house today. They greet each other joyfully, and, uh, but they're saying, look at this, he's going to stay at a sinner's house. We are the respectable people. And uh, if he were a respectable, a respectable man, he would not choose to stay with sinners. He would choose to stay with us because we would, he would be worthy of our company. But what he's doing, he's, he's, he's slumming as far as they were concerned, and this was scandalous to them. But Zacchaeus stood his ground, and he said to the Lord, Look, sir, I'm going to give half my property to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, I will pay him back four times the amount. The four times the amount is, um, <clears throat> we're reminded, for instance, of the young rich man that Jesus encounters and says, give what you have to the poor, and the rich man couldn't do it. Here Zacchaeus says, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'll do it in order, in order to be in your presence, in order to be <clears throat> part of the people whom you are gathering. This instantaneous conversion in Zacchaeus means that he was not alien in, in the beginning. It means that he had a heart open and disposed to, to the covenant and to the expectations and the hopes of Israel. And while he earned his living maybe in a sort of unsocially unsavory sort of way, it does not mean that he was not down deep inside of him someone who honored the covenant. And more so than those who had taken the covenant over and created their own religion out of it through the rabbinic law. He knows the law because he says, if I have cheated anyone, I'll pay him back four times the amount. 
This is a stipulation that we find in, um, in Exodus 22.1, and we find it in 2 Samuel 12.6. The idea, if you have taken somebody significant, something significant from somebody, you are to pay it back fourfold. So he is quoting then the law as it states, as it is stated in the prophet Samuel, and it is in the book of, of, Ezekiel, of Exodus. And so he's, he's, very, he's very clear that he knows the Jewish tradition, which means it's very much a part of who he is. How many of us could reach back and find precedent for um, some of the practices that, that we are used to having as, as Catholics? How many of us could look back and say, well, you know, this comes from here, this comes from here. But Zacchaeus could do that. And uh, which means he's versed in the law of Israel. Maybe not in the rabbinic law, but in the law of Israel, in the Torah. And so Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek out and to save what was lost. This, this is dramatic. Jesus is identifying in a way, identifying him with self, with salvation. And we know that to be the case. We know that salvation is Jesus Christ and we are saved in him and through him and with him. This is our deepest belief when we come to receive the Eucharist, that we are accepting salvation into our lives. So Jesus says here, he's going to Zacchaeus' house and be, with his presence comes salvation. He said, because this man too is a son of Abraham. This man too is doing his best to be faithful to the covenant. He's not living according to the law of the rabbis, but he's living according to the law, to the Torah. He's living according to the interpretation of the authentic law of Moses, the love of neighbor and the love of God, as best he can. And then Jesus justifies what he's doing, and he says, you know, because I didn't come um, to... <clears throat> to save those who already think they're saved. I have come to seek out those who are lost and to bring them into salvation. This is something very important for us to know when we think about in the great questions of our own age, we think about the whole issue of evangelization. Why is that necessary for us? Why is not just our own salvation sufficient for us? Because incorporated into the life and the person and the mission of Jesus, we also are sent here to save those who are lost. That it is not just kind of a, uh, I don't know, just, just kind of a, gee, you know, we want everybody to be like us or we want our numbers to grow or we want to be unchallenged or anything like that. It's because we have the obligation, if we are the disciples of the Lord, to share his mission. And here is what his mission is. It is to save what was lost. And interestingly enough, in John's Gospel, when we get to John 20, we're dealing also with this very same issue. Jesus says in John 20 to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Well, then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. 
What Jesus is doing then, not only is he commissioning to fulfill his mission, but he's telling them what it is. It is the lifting of the burden of sin from backs of people, from the back of humanity, from the souls of, of God's own people. And it's very similar here. I have come to save what was lost. I have come to bring an end to the sinful structures within a person's life that keep them bound to this earth and keep them separated and distant from myself. So Jesus is consistent in telling us what his mission is. He's also consistent, eventually in the Gospels, to sharing that mission with those whom he has called, particularly and primarily with his apostles, and through them, of course, to the whole church, which includes ourselves. So that <clears throat> we have here an example, I suppose, of what true evangelization is all about. First of all, and, and I think that this kind of is the structure. First of all, what we do has to be interesting to people. And I think that once, and we say to ourselves, well, how can we be interesting to people? And I'd, I'd like to maybe offer uh, two suggestions. And I think I've mentioned this before, is that when the film integrates silence, which was uh, a very long, I don't know how many hours it was, maybe three, maybe more than that. But it was, it was uh, a, a documentary of sorts of the life of the Carthusian monastery of Prémontré in France, the home, the, the mother house of the Carthusian order. Um, the German filmmaker who made the film inquired of the abbot if he would be able to do that. And the abbot said he would have to reflect upon it and think about it. Um, before he could give permission. Well, 16 years later, he called the, uh, he, he called the German film producer, yeah, I've thought about it, you're welcome to come and film our life. Well, the film is simply about the life of the Carthusian, the daily life of the Carthusian monk. It showed at the Wexner Center at Ohio State, and it was only scheduled to be there a couple days as kind of a semi-art film of sort. They had to keep it on for several weeks because of the crowds that wanted to see it. It was interesting to people. What is interesting about a life, a secluded life of silence in the French Alps? Whatever it is, it was interesting to the very secular crowd of people. And it was therefore a moment, an opportunity for the kind of evangelization that the church is tasked with because it had people's attention. I think another thing, another example, as I knew a young man, a young professional man one time who was, came to talk to me, and uh, he was, had uh, moved into town from outside of town. He didn't have any friends or knew anybody there. But somehow or other, he got involved with, with a family who was networked with a group, a number of families, and they were all Catholic. And he said to me, he said, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at kind of the joy that they have in their lives that, that I don't know anyone else who has. It was interesting to him, their lifestyle, how they lived. And they certainly were not, you know, super pious Catholics, but they were deeply Catholic people in their faith and in their practices and so forth. And yet, you know, they were, they were social and they were fun and they were all of that kind of thing. And it was a great moment for this young man because he found it interesting that Catholics seemed to have a greater joy in their life than the people that he had grown up with and that the people that he knew. 
And so to say to ourselves, what is interesting about us that would get people's attention? All sorts of things. <clears throat> The evidence of a life of fidelity, the evidence of a prayer life, the evidence of public charity to one another, the, the evidence, you know, the, the, the angry mobs uh, within the church who are, who are uh, constantly, you know, uh, vitriolic against, uh, against the, the church and the institution of the church and want it done their way. They're an, they're an interesting to nobody. But those who live the faith, we know can become very interesting people. I know that, for instance, even in a neighborhood where there's a Catholic church and there might be, you know, a mixture, racial, religious mixture, people are interested in the Catholic church because they see so many people coming on Sunday. They see people laughing together afterward. They, they see it's the whole public image, something maybe we don't even think about sometimes, especially if we live in heavily Catholic communities. It's just normal for us, and we don't see anything extraordinary about it. Believe me, people from the outside see something extraordinary about it. And what it tells us is that this idea of getting people's attention and being interesting is simply to be faithful and joyful about our faith. And this is something, of course, <clears throat> that, that, we have, that we have to do with the story of Zacchaeus. He's interested in Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He, he's heard about him. He knows what he does. Um, there is no indication that Jesus is a dour kind of person. Um, that that he, he, he's a faithful man. And uh, not only is he faithful, but he has a dynamic personality and a great, and a great, um, a great presence and a great message. He's an interesting man. We find even Herod was interested, wanted to meet him um, because he'd heard so much about him. The same way he wanted to meet John the Baptist, whom he eventually murdered but because he found he's an interesting man. He's gained my attention. I want to know who he is. And so too, Zacchaeus, obviously from what he says about what he will do, is deeply steeped in the Hebrew tradition, deeply steeped in the sacred scripture, deeply steeped in the Torah and the law of Moses, deeply steeped in the, in the, in the uh, spirit of the covenant. And he sees in Jesus someone who gives life and, and who gives a new kind of perspective and a new kind of life to the covenant. And he's fascinated by that and he wants to see him. If Zacchaeus did not have this deep within him, he could have just grumbled with the pharisaical crowd and say, you know, who is this guy and what is he doing? And, he, you know, we've known that he, he has healed on the Sabbath. He has done this. Um, he has uh, he has allowed his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath and and all of these kinds of things nitpicking all of the things that Jesus did in violation of the rabbinic the six hundred and thirty six rabbinic laws that govern the daily life of the ordinary Hebrew person and so he could simply find him as kind of is as, as kind of kind of um, a, a, an unfaithful Jew and someone who did not respect the structures of Judaism. But what happens is that Jesus has a deep and abiding love and respect for the covenant, because the covenant is between himself and the people of Israel, between his father and the people of Israel. These are his brothers and sisters. These are his children. These are the ones who he cares deeply about. And those who have gone astray because 
of the incompatibility with the pharisaical religion, the rabbinic religion, with the religion of the covenant, finds himself kind of as an outcast on the outside looking in and takes advantage of that, obviously, in order to make a living. What do we say now to ourselves about all of this? How do we take this and situate this within our own lives? And I think one thing we take from this, and sometimes we get discouraged, and sometimes we, we somehow kind of feel like maybe it's not the right thing to do, maybe we're, maybe we're failures or so forth, to know the tradition of our church, to know the source and the depth of her teaching, to know that it flows from the person of Jesus Christ, it flows through sacred scripture into the magisterium of the church and from the magisterium of the church through the guidance of the Holy Spirit into the hearts and the souls of our people. That somewhere deep inside there is this idea, there's understanding, that there is something of great mystery and great depth in our background, in our story, in our history. And I wonder what that is. This is Zacchaeus. You know who else is a great biblical example of this is Queen Esther, who when, when uh, the, the evil Haman is going to annihilate, exterminate the Jews in the ancient empire of, Ahuz, of, um, of um, the Persians, um, one of the heirs of, uh, of Alexander the Great, um, what, what happens then is Mordecai, Esther's uncle, it tells her, remember now your heritage, remember now your background. And interestingly enough, he says to her, what makes you think that you'll escape this purge? What makes you think that? Even though you are living in a harem of a pagan king, um, do you think he'll spare you if the decree goes out that all Jews be killed? And Esther then prays. And we have an indication this is not what she does daily, but she says, Lord God, I've heard of you. I have heard of our ancestors. And in so I now, because of how faithful you were to them, I trust in you and I place my life in your hands. How many of us will have that dramatic moment where we say, oh yes, I remember the fidelity of the Lord. I remember his promise of salvation. I remember how it affected the lives of my grandparents, my great-grandparents, even sometimes my parents. Um, I remember back through the ages, I've, I've heard the stories of the great saints. I've heard all, this is my heritage also. I wonder what it means for me today. In the days of Queen Esther, it was a terrible crisis that brought her to her attention. Here in the story of Zacchaeus, it is the opportunity to see firsthand the source of this new covenant, the source of this new teaching. And so in any case, without the background, they did not actually probably have the capacity, Esther to offer her life for the sake of her people, Zacchaeus to be converted on the spot and agree immediately, knowing that what his obligations were under the real law, and seeing Jesus, he converts immediately and offers to abide by the rules of Exodus and Samuel. It's the same way with the disciples, and it's the same way with the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
had they not in some way, shape, or form been versed in the story of Israel, they would not have been prepared to have recognized Jesus as different as the Messiah. They would have been swept up into the modern culture of the Pharisees, and they would simply seen him as, as some kind of trouble, some kind of a problem in their midst. But because, and we see this, for instance, in Luke's Gospel when we talk of the Virgin Mary, and there's great speculation and vague probability that all of that, of Mary's, of the Annunciation, of the Visitation, all of that, probably came from the Blessed Mother herself in her discussions with Luke when he was in Jerusalem. That's probably her testimony. And her testimony is, especially in the Magnificat, she draws on all of the images of the Old Testament. The whole thing is an Old Testament hymn. Um, all of it oriented toward fulfillment, toward the fulfillment in, in, in the new age of the new covenant of the new Messiah. We find that that's constant even in the apostles. They go back, and simple as they may have been, who knows, they have a deep recollection of the expectations of Israel. They have, there's a great, there was a great conversion after the death of Jesus of the Samaritans because freed from the rabbinic law, they had a deep memory of the story of Israel and their, of the Lord and their people, and they remained faithful to him. So to it, it, so is it too in our life. We must strive, whether we see the res immediate results or not, but to inculcate our tradition in those who come after us. There, it's a tragedy that after the 70s and 80s that our Catholic education system almost collapsed on this and they tried to create in the spirit of the age a new religion. They've been radically unsuccessful with that. And of course the, the, the hangers-on of the past age are still struggling to preserve that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, pharisaical rabbinic religion and to obliterate the true, the true story of Jesus and his people. But still, within the revised catechetical programs that we're discovering, and with a kind of a turn um, in a more hostile age toward that which is authentic liturgically and catechetically and theologically and so forth, um, the old guard remains, and there remains a powerful force within the church. But nevertheless, Nevertheless, the tradition must be preserved and handed on so that we recognize Jesus when he is present, so that just like Mary and the apostles, we can go back and pick out from the ages past the identity of the present time and the, presence and the presence of Jesus. We can recall Queen Esther. We can recall the story of Zacchaeus. We can know that there is always a promise and a hope of conversion far beyond what we are able to see or understand if we but plant the seeds of faith, plant the seeds of the truth of the gospel, and plant the seeds of salvation history within, the, within our own young people, that they might have the opportunity someday to see it blossom and come to fruition in their lives. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.
Sa-